If you have your Bible in hand, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 3. I begin this morning with a question or two. Would you respect me? Would you respect me if I were nice when I saw you on a Sunday morning when you saw me on stage, but then you caught word that I was harsh at home? Would you be inclined to listen to me and pay attention to me or anyone else who preaches if we appear nicely in public, but in reality, we're harsh at home or maybe with a short fuse? Paul has moved us from this soaring Christology to practical application for us. If you remember chapter 2, he said, let no one take you captive through vain or deceitful ideology, lesser ideology to the word of God. Set your mind on things above, Colossians 3 verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We call this the eternal perspective and it should govern every nook and cranny of our life. He told us to put to death the sinful practices that remain in our thinking, in our lives. We're not to live in them anymore because we are new creations in Christ. Rather, we should not only take off the old or put it to death, but we should put on the new. With God's help, we should be intentional about developing Christian virtues in our life, such as kindness and patience and love for one another. All of this should be deeply rooted in a rich understanding of God's word that should dwell richly within each of us so that we can minister these truths to one another. So, how do we demonstrate that this world is dead to us? That we are actually just pilgrims passing through as we look to our heavenly inheritance? How do we die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him every day? What does it actually look like to put on tenderness and compassion and kindness to one another? Paul's most specific application of the soaring theology that we've seen is going to be in the household, in the home. The most tender relationships that we have. He envisions a typical Greco-Roman household and shows us how to live in a practical sense. I want to note from the very beginning, as Karen hinted in her prayer, this is a very tender passage to consider. Based on our life experiences, it will hit each of us differently. There's no way around that. The brokenness we experience in this world comes to play in a passage like this. 
If this is the case, particularly for you, I want you to know I see you. What I share this morning is, as always, shared from a shepherd's heart. I hope each of us will do our best to stay engaged as we travel through this passage this morning. As I do my very, very best to present it, I also, on the other hand, don't want to diminish or downplay God's truth in it. So I must note that what we are considering this morning has a context. You will know that the majority of my preaching, the preaching here, is what we call expository preaching. That is, we preach through a whole book in the Bible or a big chunk in a a book of the Bible. And the, the, the benefit of this is we get to see everything in its context. We get to see what surrounds it and why that the author is saying what he is saying. You've often heard me say that context is king. We do have a bad habit, especially here in the West, I think, of taking a verse that we really like and that immediately goes up on our living room wall or bathroom wall or wherever. And that's a good thing, but sometimes we miss its actual setting. And the setting is what is so helpful for us to understand what that verse is getting at. I'm not telling you to go home and take down all your verse pictures. They're wonderful. I'm just saying, make sure we know exactly what they're speaking to. So let's read our passage uh, together this morning. Colossians chapter 3, and we'll begin in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord." Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master In heaven. Saints, I do not know when our Lord is returning, but I stand before when I stand before him face to face, I want to be ready. And I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. As we consider this passage, as in any generation, there are sometimes gospel principles that correlate with cultural norms already in place. Such is the case. Here, our first consideration is the first lady of the house. How are wives to relate to their husbands in the context of the theology that has just preceded these comments? There was, in fact, great similarity to what was commonly encountered at that time. In Scripture, wives are told, here and other places, to be submissive to their husbands. To have a disposition of respect and honor toward their husband. Husbands, indeed, were the head of the house. 
Now note Paul's important comment. As is fitting in the Lord. His directives to wives might be similar in some way to what they already knew in culture. But this is directly from the Lord. This is fitting in the Lord. We must be very careful in handling his instructions because they are the Lord's instructions. Now here comes Christian theology and a distinctly Christian perspective that would turn their world upside down and actually inform household ethics for centuries to come. What he said to wise was neither shocking nor surprising. Honestly, it was nothing new in a sense. But what he would say to the husband is a game changer. Husbands are to agape love their wives. They are told not to be harsh with them. It was all too common for men to treat family members harshly. As in many ways, they were at their whim. The gospel ended that. Do not sleep on this all-important statement. You will search and you can search the entire ancient world, the world over. And you will never find a directive in secular society to husbands to agape love their wife. The only talk of love was the Eros love in a sexual way. It was perfectly acceptable in Paul's time and quite common for men to pursue all manner of sexual uh, conquest within or outside their marriage, even pedastry. And often associated with pagan temple worship. That's the context. Every home needs a leader, and that leader is to love his wife, as Vinnie read, as Deb read earlier, sorry, as Christ loved his church. Christ deals with us with unspeakable humility and laid his life down for us. The one who created us, the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, submitted himself to death. This is definitely countercultural and was a game changer. God is calling wives to have a submissive disposition towards their husbands but is equally and at the same time calling husbands to exemplify servant leadership, to be clothed with humility, to think of others, in particular their wife, more highly than himself, to truly love and to cherish her. Our example is none other than the son of the living God. 
Now, what we'll see consistently as we go through this passage is that every person he speaks to, or every station, if you will, has rights and responsibilities. The truth is, Paul is conveying dignity and worth to people who, at the time, from society's standpoint, had neither. Now, before we move further, I would like to look at a governing principle that we find in the New Testament. You might recall in the beginning of the book of Acts, the history of the early church, chapters 4 and 5, the gospel begins to explode. The apostles are leading the way. It's all still within Jerusalem at this point. Oh, but it's getting everywhere within Jerusalem. The religious leaders were not happy about this. They wanted to shut everything down. So they would call, they would haul the apostles in, they would beat them, and they would say, on no certain terms are you to preach or teach in Jesus' name anymore. To which the apostles responded, Acts chapter 5. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered on one particular occasion, we must obey God rather than men. Simply put, Peter says he will submit to the authority over him, but will not violate his conscience before the word of God. So as we consider the directives concerning submission or obedience today, let it be known that in no wise would we counsel someone to stay in a relationship or a setting that is abusive or puts one in peril. I personally have engaged myself both locally and around the world to help children who are in distress in their current circumstances. Oftentimes, directives in Scripture need to be seen in their proper context and nuance to include this governing principle in the New Testament. So let's move along to children. The word that is used here for children in the Greek is technon, which can, can technically mean adult children. But I think what he has in mind really is the younger kids who are in the home um, under their parents' care. Children are specifically told here and elsewhere to obey their parents. Wives are told to have a submissive disposition, but children specifically are told to be obedient. And once again, this statement is qualified to say that this is done in the Lord. This is the Lord's plan. In Ephesians chapter 6, we know that children are also told to honor their parents. Obedience can sometimes be done as an action. I mean, I think we've all been there. You know, little Johnny, you go up and clean your room. And so little Johnny stumps up and up down the stairs and has a bad, terrible attitude and does a halfway job. I mean, that could be in some way called obedience, but that's not honoring your mom and dad. This echoes from the Old Testament, of course. Quite remarkably, fathers are also addressed. 
Now, you might know in a technical sense, grammatically, this actually could be applied to both parents, but most consider it to be fathers. Fathers are not to be provocative towards their children. Now, listen. The very fact in context that fathers are being spoken to and held accountable was absolutely unheard of in relation to their children. It was entirely countercultural. We know this. We who are adults were once kids ourselves. Kids are so easily discouraged. They're developing, and our ultimate goal is to launch them as well-adjusted and responsible adults, secure in the love that we have for them. Our parenting cannot be done with a heavy hand. No kid wants to be treated harshly, and no child will ever thrive in that context. But it was all too common in the day. So fathers specifically are being called to a higher standard, a level of reasonableness. This is how fathers take the sinful habits that plagued their society. They were to put on the new. They were told to be considerate, to be gentle, to be loving leaders in their home. I refer you back to Philippians 2, the first few verses that talks about humility towards one another. And I just want to say, though there are specific directives given to particular people, remember the New Testament is pretty clear and pretty consistent saying we should all love one another. We should all be tender and compassionate and submit to one another. The final group addressed in the household is referenced in the ESV as bond servants. It would be more literally rendered slaves. It was very common in the day, as it is today in many cultures, for families to have a, a, um, a, a home, like a bond servant within the home. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we must approach aspects of our passage today with tremendous care. The Greco-Roman system of slaves and masters was not racially based. It is not analogous to the sin of racism or slavery in the United States and in other countries. In fact, that form of slavery was a capital offense in the Old Testament. It goes without saying, as we have said in the past, that we denounce and lament all forms of Racism. All are image bearers of God, and He is building His church of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Historians will commonly inform us that in Paul's time, bond servants or slaves comprised one third of the entire population. Their material needs were met, although they did not have legal rights. If their master was an inconsiderate person, their lives could be very difficult. The life of a household servant was really in the hands of their master. If he was a decent human being, it was much different than with a harsh taskmaster. 
So we need to pay attention to the details of what is said here. He tells bond servants to render wholehearted obedience to their master and not in a superficial way. Not in a way that appears good on the surface, but is not from their heart. Rather, their job should be engaged with a wholehearted desire to do it well. There is a reminder here that ultimately it is the Lord whom they are serving. The upending nature of the Christian church is that now people from varying socioeconomic classes were conjoined together in one body of Christ. The assumption is that all of these people were worshiping together on the Lord's day. We all stand before God by the grace of God. And in that sense, there is no distinction between Christians. We are all on equal footing and gained entrance to the poverty of our spirit at the cross. Paul was conveying even to the household bondservant, I see you. You matter and you belong. Here's how you live in a Christian, as a Christian in your circumstances. In that sense, they were assigned human dignity and worth. But here's an important observation. They were given responsibility as well. Character is developed and dignity is assigned when people are given something to work on. And such was the case with the bondservants. Keep in mind, as in all circumstances, he said, that it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Conversely, and once again, masters are being told something that they had never been challenged with before. They are not to be harsh with their bondservants. They are not to dishonor them, but rather to see their humanity and dignity as image bearers of God, because they will Give an account before God. By the Lord's leading, he confronted male leadership of the day and called us to a higher standard. There is no husband in his right mind that puts his head on the pillow at night and said, I have arrived. I am that perfect husband. I have discharged my duties I have loved my wife as Christ loved the church. I know that I have a long ways to go to model the love of Christ in my home. It is, of course, my highest intention, but I don't execute perfectly. The picture that the Holy Spirit is painting is one of harmony and security and love. It is indeed a picture of flourishing despite the fact that we execute imperfectly. This is a general picture of how Christian harmony looks in the home and in society. As I said before, do not forget, we Christians are told to submit to one another, to be humble with one another, and have a disposition of humility toward one another as Christ modeled for us. Do not discard these principles as if they are outdated, particularly for husband and wife, were not of the Lord. 
take to heart the qualifiers that we see throughout the passage as is fitting in the Lord. As unto the Lord or in the Lord. Let us give serious consideration and ask for the Lord's assistance in living in obedience to what he has given us. And not just obedience in lip service, but obedience from the heart. Let us support and encourage one another to this end. Men, husbands in particular. If you are more fixated on whether or not your wife is submitted to you or submissive towards you, let's reframe that narrative. We husbands have a very high bar. We are to agape love our wives as Christ loved us. You will never discharge that perfectly. You won't. So focus on yourself. And focus instead on how we as husbands are loving our wives in a Christ-like manner. And I quote, Many today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way to reach personal life goals. They are looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. And that creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to a deep pessimism that you will ever find the right person to marry. Whether you're married now or not, that's Tim Keller. Now let us highlight, I'm landing the plane here, let us highlight some more of the big picture ideas. No matter the circumstance you find yourself in, and I'm speaking to those circumstances that are not violating your conscience before God. Always remember the correct posture in life. If your disposition is to be humble towards others, you're on the right path. You might have someone over you in your home or at work or in other scenarios. You might even be the one in charge. But each of us in every situation are ultimately serving the Lord. I want to say that again. Each of us, in whatever circumstance we are currently in, ultimately are serving the Lord. Whether in submission to your husband or your your obedience to your parents or fulfilling your responsibilities in your workplace or loving your family as Christ loved the church, remember verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything as unto the Lord from the heart for his glory and for his praise. Sometimes it is a joy to discharge our duties. Many times it is not. My brothers and sisters, With the Lord's help, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Your reward is before you. I would like to draw one final application of Paul's theology, and it's not in the household. I want you to see how this pervades the New Testament. 
I invite you to turn uh, or scroll to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you're turning, I would like to flash up my childhood pastor. This is uh, Mike Minter. He was here. You'll recognize the pulpit. He was here. A number of years ago, I had him just come and speak to our leadership. Um, I had the pleasure of literally growing up under his ministry. He's now in his 80s. He has since moved down to Nashville for retirement. And I think three months later, he's on the staff of another church. (laughs) Can't help himself. But I have to say this. I am so thankful for my pastor. I did not grow up thinking I was going to become a pastor. That was a big surprise in my life. But my brothers and I often talk about this fact. We grew up with a pastor who was so unassuming, who is so personable, who was so humble, who rarely got entangled in conflict with other people, who did not make power grabs, who did not think of himself any more highly than he should. He was so approachable. I never appreciated that when I was younger. I just thought that's what all leaders are like. And sadly, such is not the case, particularly even in churches. He was and is a completely humble leader and pastor. I don't remember him ever preaching on it, but I I know his life. And I'm so thankful for those examples. First Peter chapter five. The first few verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. As well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Now, listen, look carefully at what he's saying. He's speaking now to elders, the leadership within a church. And he's speaking as a fellow elder. So he's not sitting over here telling another group how to live. He is one of them saying, this is how we are to lead. But listen to what he says. As a witness of the sufferings of Christ. All the passages which talk about Christ's suffering and his humility, Peter says, I was there. I lived it. I saw it. And he directly tethers it precisely to what what Paul said in our passage. A partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. That's his perspective. The eternal perspective. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The flock that God has given you. Shepherd them. Lead them. Care for them. Exercising oversight, watch this, not under compulsion with a bad attitude, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. 
but eagerly. Verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge. That same humility that we are to have toward one another, that same humility that a husband is to model in his home and a father, that same humility applies equally to the leadership of the church because God's way is through humility and no other way. And he mirrors what Paul says, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. My dear brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen and in a broken world. In the station that God has you in, serve the Lord with all of your heart. He's coming again. And he's coming for you. Let us all seek to engage one another with humility and outdo one another in giving honor to one another. That's Romans 12. Let us be kind and supportive of one another in every single setting bar none. Let us be patient with one another and bear with one another in our struggles and in our weaknesses. I would like to take a minute or two of just quiet reflection, each of us individually, and then I'll close this out in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, this morning as we consider your word, my first and foremost goal is to always present it clearly, what you have to say. As we have taken time to explore the depth of the beautiful theology that is present in Colossians, just that one phrase, Christ, the firstborn of the dead, the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. And he's the first among many. When the roll is called of yonder, we'll be there. Holy Spirit, as you have given us instructions in your timeless truth, and as these truths are, are cross-referenced throughout the New Testament, would you please make application for each of us. Your word is alive and it is active. Comfort and support us with your grace. Give us resolve and help in areas that we need to adjust in our lives. And more than anything else, as he spoke so clearly last week in our text from last week, may we truly put to death that which remains 
and clothe and adorn ourselves with the beautiful love and humility, the tenderness and the compassion, indeed the chesed that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in all of our attitudes towards one another, in our disposition towards one another, and of course in our actions, that we would please you in all that we do, that we would reflect the love and the grace and the humility that has been given and, and modeled for us. And Father, we pray that you would also comfort us. Help us. Sustain us. Lord, we thank you. We thank you as well for the simplicity and for the power of the gospel of Christ. The blood that was shed sufficient for each and every one who would turn in repentance to you. See their need. Admit their need. And through poverty of spirit, abandon all efforts to figure this out ourselves. But to believe that Jesus died for us. He died for our sins, was buried and rose again. And put our faith and our confidence in him alone. And thus, as the scripture says, pass from death unto life. O oh Lord, fill us with your joy. Happiness might come from our circumstances. Joy comes from the Lord. Joy helps us and supports us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.